I hope you have a Bible, and if you do, I hope you open it to Hebrews chapter 8, and today we're going to look again a little more in-depth at understanding the newness of the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8, in verses 6 through 13. I happen, I happen to think that grasping what I'm going to try to communicate to you today could be a turning point for you in your Christian life. And I believe that many, many Christians get stuck in an old covenant way of relating to God. And life becomes sort of a quid pro quo transaction or proposition to where if I do it right, if I get the principles of the Christian life right, then you have to bless me. You owe me. If I get it right, you owe me. And that's a dangerous way to live your life. Number one, you never get it right. And number two, God owes us nothing but justice. And we don't want that either. But I truly believe that we are living beneath the promises and benefits of the new covenant so often. And the reason I believe that is because I've lived at that address before. And I still find myself visiting there occasionally. That is the address of being stuck under the old covenant and not truly grasping the benefits of the gospel and who I am in Jesus Christ. With that said, hear now the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 8. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we would pray now. We would ask 
that you be generous today, that you show yourself to be who you are, that you would show yourself to be gracious in showing us what this new covenant is and what the newness of the new covenant is. And we pray that you would give us understanding. You would give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And that we would hear this message for ourselves, not for our neighbor, not for our relatives, not for a friend somewhere else, or not for someone who's not here who, who you think should be. But we pray we would hear it for ourselves, that you would drive home the truths deeply now. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let's get our bearings and sort of uh, establish where we are in the book of Hebrews. This is sort of a summary point of the first eight chapters, or the first seven chapters. And the book of Hebrews contains some of the clearest teaching in the Bible on the subject of the new covenant, writing to Jewish Christians who were under severe persecution, more than any of us could stand and who were very tempted to depart the faith by returning back to the Old Covenant. The author in this magnificent sermon argues that Christ is the fulfillment of all the types and shadows of the Old Covenant, and He is the true High Priest who has secured for us an eternal redemption through His blood. This means that Jesus is a guarantor of a better covenant and a, a better than the old covenant that was mediated by Moses. For it is enacted upon better promises. Whereas the old covenant promised blessing for the nation if they obeyed, the new covenant promises forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the writer quotes from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, to show that God's ancient promise of a new covenant has come to pass in Christ. Fulfillment has occurred. Not total fulfillment, not complete fulfillment. That will not happen until the consummation. But the inauguration and the alreadiness of the new covenant is now present to the believer because Christ inaugurated it through his death. And so we are members of the new covenant people of God. And so returning to the old covenant, therefore, is impossible since the inauguration of the new covenant has made it obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. Now let me step back a little bit and define some terms for us because I know talking about covenant for some of us is not something we talk about every day unless we live in a gated community or a community controlled by the HOA who we all love. We don't really want to think about the HOA I'm sure. If you've ever lived in that I had to plant a tree one time because my tree wasn't tall enough. I said it's gonna grow trust me. I'm going to water it, I'm going to fertilize it, and it's going to grow. And this guy threatened to find me unless I went out and got a new tree, which I did. And it took over the whole front yard. It just went crazy. It was the fastest growing tree in the history of the universe. <laughs> and it satisfied that little man, I think. 
maybe. But what in the world is a covenant? When we talk about a covenant, what are we talking about? Last week we said that the word covenant is kind of like defining a mother. It's difficult to nail it with one term. Some people would say it's a contract, but no, that's very, very inadequate. Contract is not what I'm talking about and not what the Bible's talking about. In the Bible, the most intimate relationships, the closest relationship you could possibly have, were those that were the most binding relationships. A covenant relationship is a totally binding and yet totally intimate relationship at once. And so the Bible says the more intimate, the more delightful, the more personal a relationship is, the more binding, the more solemn, and even the more legal it should be. And so the new covenant relationship we had with God is to realize that the old covenant was based upon conditions. And there was really not much intimacy in it. There was, but not much. The new covenant is unconditional. Therefore, there's a place for intimacy to grow. God says to us, even if you sin, even if you rebel against me, even if you go whoring after other gods and idols, I will never turn my face away from you. I will never remember your sin against you. I am ready to forgive you. And so God says to us essentially through the new covenant and the covenant of grace, I will be what I should be to you. I'll be faithful to you even if you're not faithful to me. Well, where did God do that and where did God say that? First in the book of Jeremiah, also in the book of Ezekiel, and uh, in the book of Romans, in the book of 2 Corinthians, in the book of Galatians, and mostly in the book of Hebrews, which is where we are and what we're going to talk about. So we've talked about what a covenant is. Now we want to talk about what he means when he uses the term the new covenant. What is the new covenant? And I'm so glad you asked because I have an answer for that. A better way of asking the question then is what is new about the new covenant? Why does he call it new? Since the covenant of grace is the one covenant through which all believers in all space and time are saved, why did God bother with making a new covenant? Well, there are six main differences between the Old and New Covenants that are important to understand, and I'm going to race through these because of time as fast as I can. Number one, the New Covenant is new in relation to the Mosaic Covenant, uh, not the Abrahamic. And this is where a lot of Christians get confused because once they see the word new, then they think new means brand new, never heard of before. Poof! It just came into existence. No. The new covenant is really the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled in, in an inauguration kind of way by Christ. The covenant with Abraham is everlasting. And who is Abraham's seed? Well, in Jeremiah, he mentions the house of Israel. He mentions the house of Judah. But now we understand after Christ has come and we're looking at life through the lenses of his fulfillment of the covenant promises that the people of God, the seed of Abraham, is everyone who has faith. Seed of Abraham is no longer determined by ethnicity. 
The seed of Abraham is not determined by who your mother and father are. The seed of Abraham is having faith like Abraham has. And the ultimate seed of Abraham is Christ. And uh, we are the seed of Abraham insofar as we are united with Christ. God has made out of the two one new man. He's torn down the wall of partition and division, and he's made one new wall. So we learn in chapter 5, we learn that uh, the unconditional covenant of grace with Abraham was not interrupted by the conditional covenant he made with Israel 430 years later. The book of Galatians tells us that. In fact, the continuity between the Abrahamic and the New Covenant is so strong that New Testament writers call all believers, whether Jew or Gentile, the offspring of Abraham. Both are covenants of promise, not law. In both, God unconditionally promises to give gifts to undeserving sinners on the basis of His grace alone, because of Christ alone. And so, the covenant that is old and obsolete and is being replaced is not the Abrahamic covenant, but rather the Mosaic covenant. Now, let me tell you a little secret. If my Reformed Baptist friends ever acknowledge this, they're going to have a hard time not being covenantal. Because one of their objections to our understanding of the new covenant is that it is in continuity with the Abrahamic covenant. They do not see that. And as much as I love them, I used to be one, they're wrong. They are dead wrong. And so what it gets down to is they're going to have to baptize babies and they never want to do that. That's what it gets down to. (laughs) Sort of lose your reason for being. And there it is. Now, I'm not being mean when I say that. I hope you know that because you you have to know that I, on good days, love most of them. There we are. (laughs) The, The newness of the new covenant, while highlighting some discontinuity with the Mosaic covenant, or its total discontinuity with the Mosaic Covenant does not create discontinuity with the Abrahamic Covenant. And so God's work, it's not like God planned this Mosaic Covenant and uh-oh, it didn't work, so we got to do something new. This is God's heart and plan for all time. Second, this covenant is mediated by Christ rather than Moses. That's an important distinction. I don't think I need to say any more than that. You know that already. Third, the new covenant blesses us rather than curses us, or cusses us either. Um, You understand, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, or you look at Leviticus 16, you'll see over and over again that the old covenant was conditioned upon what? Obedience. If you obey me, I will what? Bless you. If you disobey me, I will what? I will curse you. And so that was the understanding of the Old Covenant. It cursed those. The New Covenant provides the believing sinners with something the Old Covenant was incapable of giving, righteousness and forgiveness of sins. The Old Covenant was based on law and required the national obedience of Israel in order to receive the blessings Its condition was, do this and you will be blessed. The new covenant, on the other hand, is based on God's promise to save sinners. Its condition is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. In his commentary on Hebrews, John Owen, the great English Puritan, underlined this distinction. Uh, 
The old covenant, absolutely considered, had no promise of grace to communicate spiritual strength or to assist us in obedience. What it promised had to do with temporal things in the land of Canaan. The law given in the old covenant had no power to produce righteousness. It could only discover, condemn, and set bounds to sin. Conversely, the new covenant declares the love grace and mercy of God and therewith to give repentance remission of sins and eternal life whereas the old covenant could only reinforce the curse of sin the new covenant reverses it fourth we're almost through with six the new covenant provides an internal renewal by the Holy Spirit we'll talk more about this as we continue in the message but just to say in the Old Testament God promised a great outpouring of his spirit Spirit upon people in the last days. Although Israel failed to bear the fruits of righteousness, God's people would be abundantly fruitful in the new covenant because of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit produces in God's people what they were incapable of producing themselves, causing them to walk in new obedience. With the new covenant, the Spirit brings the new creation into the present time. Now, the new covenant coincides with the age to come. It brings the good things to come into the present. Fifth, the new covenant includes the nations. I've already said that. Sixth, the new covenant is permanent. The old covenant was temporary. It was designed to be replaced. The new covenant is final and irreplaceable. And so that is what's new about the new covenant. But it's based upon better promises, and so for the balance of this message, I want to focus our attention on the better promises that we find in the New Covenant. And so to do that, I'm going to call your attention to the first one, and that is the Spirit's transforming work. In other words, the weakness of the Old Covenant was not that the law of God is not true. The law is holy, it's just, it's good, it's beneficial, it's a gift of God to his people. The only problem with God's law is sinners can't keep it. We cannot do it. We cannot love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves in our own strength. We cannot do it, and if we think we are doing it, we're worse than those who know they can't. You can't. It's ineffectual. And so we're in a conundrum here. We're in a promise. And so the first promise of the new covenant is stated in verse 10. I will put my laws into their minds, write them on their hearts. In the old covenant, God gave his people law, but the covenant did not give them the ability to receive it or love it or keep its demands. In Romans 8, 3, Paul says the old covenant law was compromised by the weakness of human nature. And this is why the relationship between God and his people broke down under the old covenant. But in the new covenant, God has made provision for human weakness, promising not only to give the law, but to actually place it within us. The point, this points to the work of the Holy Spirit as Jesus sends him to his own. What is the first thing Christ did when he ascended to the right hand of the Father? Whom... Did he pour out upon his church? The Holy Spirit. The day of Pentecost. 
and the fullness of the Holy Spirit was poured out upon his people. And so the relationship with God and the relationship to the law is no longer external, me doing the best I can, but is rather internalized and intensified. And it points to regeneration. You hear of Jesus talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was the teacher of the law. He was a brilliant theologian. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was well respected. He was a scholar. He was devout. He was doing the best he could to be holy. And Jesus says to him, unless you are born from above, you can't even see the kingdom of God. You will never understand the nature of the kingdom of God. And so what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the gift of the new covenant because the gift of the new covenant is God's work of regeneration. And his work of regeneration is when his spirit comes into our dead hearts and makes us alive. He gives us the powers of the new age. We are made new creatures in Jesus Christ. And the law, for heaven's sakes, no longer is an onus and a burden to us, but it is a delight. We find ourselves wanting to do it. If you don't want to be 100% obedient to God's moral law, then, as Jeff Foxworthy says, you may not be a Christian. As a matter of fact, you're probably not. But when the Spirit of God enters us and He internalizes God's law, that means He changes us. He changes us. He transforms us. 2 Corinthians 3 is a, a parallel promise to Hebrews 8. Paul contrasts the external work of the, Holy, uh, of the Old Covenant to the internal work of the New using the same metaphor of tablets of stone in contrast to tablets of the heart on which God has written. He concludes the chapter like this, that believers in Christ are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Spirit of God enters us, dwells in us, resides in us, in order to transform us, to change us. And that's what writing the law on your heart is. And if you don't sense yourselves wanting to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he not only writes it in the affective part of us. Uh, I was listening to Dan in Sunday school today, and he was making an excellent point that people don't like theology. They just get to the point. You know, tell me how to live a practical life that helps me escape pain and find as much pleasure as possible. Please, preacher, don't preach this theology to me. First, it's written in the mind. Scripture never plays down the mind. you got to learn to think God's thoughts after him. You have to learn who he is. He's revealed himself to us. And the Spirit opens our blinded eyes to be able to see the beauty and glory. That we're no longer threatened by God, but are welcomed and sense a warm embrace. And so there's the internalization of the law. There's so much more I could say. Well, I will. Every... Every true Christian has acquaintance with this. You start wanting to do things you never wanted to do before, while old pleasures seem to disturb you. you just, they don't set well with you. You find yourself eagerly attending church. You find yourself praying. For heaven's sakes, you find yourself reading the Bible, serving others, shunning evil, 
speaking to people about Christ. And all of that is a result of God writing His law upon your hearts. And He's never going to stop doing that. He's relentless about that. He is working on us. And I have to tell you, it's uncomfortable sometimes. I do not like what the Spirit shows me about myself. I'd rather, entertain, uh, <laughs> I'd rather entertain a fictional account of how great I think I am. But the Holy Spirit has a way of taking God's law and lifting the lid off of my ego and showing me how broken and flawed I am and how much more I need to depend upon Jesus. And so your desires to do any of this never comes from you alone. For it is God who is at work in you to will and do your good pleasure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But it is what? God who is at work in you. And so, that's pretty good, isn't it? That's a pretty good promise. So there is a, a transformation. There is a heart religion, but there's also a head religion. And the promise of God's inward work makes the new covenant a better covenant. God promises that he's going to work faithfulness into us if it kills us. He's going to work it into us. What was the problem with the old covenant? It would have been no different for you and me if we'd lived under the old covenant, if we had been under Moses and we'd been under the Mosaic law, we would have failed as drastically as they did. Why? Because there was no power to keep it. Uh, and, and unfaithfulness is the definition, infidelity to the covenant. God raises up in all the prophets, covenant prosecutors who come before Israel and press the claims of the law upon his people and show them and threaten them with the curses of the covenant. And the great thing about being in the new covenant is God is working faithfulness into us. And the curses have been removed because he cursed his son in our place. He took the curses of the covenant. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, Galatians tells us. And so he was hung outside of the city on Golgotha's hill on a tree and received the curses of the covenant in order that we can freely be received by God and receive the blessings of the covenant because of Christ's obedience. <laughs> if you don't see you're sitting pretty in the new covenant, you're blind. You're blind as a blindfolded mole in a cave. Think about that for a minute. You have to be a southerner to appreciate that. Now, it's a better covenant. God works faithfulness into us. He gives us a heart that wants to obey and glorify him. It is God working in us. God will do it. Apostle Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God changes us by his word, applying it to us, illuminating our hearts, regenerating our will by the work of the Holy Spirit, and his word saves us and changes us. Now you may think, let me speak to the one who has a tender conscience here today. You may think, Pastor Posey, I thought when I believed in Jesus, I'd be getting a lot better. But I don't see that. I see myself struggling. I see myself failing. I see myself falling. Well, before that, you weren't even in the ball game. You were totally oblivious. 
But now that you sense that and you see that, that means God's at work in you. And God has to, he has to break us down. Martin Luther put it this way, he always kills us so he can make us alive. He kills us, all of our, our sin and brokenness, and he resurrects us and makes us alive through the power of the gospel. Second promise, this one will be a little faster maybe. The forgiveness of sins. He says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. And the reason this promise comes next is that it's the great and climactic promise and the basis of superiority of the new covenant. John Owen says this is the great fundamental promise and grace of the new covenant. The first thing that is necessary is the free pardon of sin. And there are two parts to this promise, and both of them are the best good news you will ever hear. The first is God will forgive our wickedness. This was foreseen by Jeremiah as he looked toward the future when Jesus Christ would die upon the cross. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I, I, really, I really wish I didn't know what iniquities meant. Because I used to read it all the time and go, okay, well, iniquity. Do you know what that means? <laughs> Perverseness. Our perversions. That's what iniquity means. It is a perversion of God-given gifts, uh, of, of God-given life. It's the perversion of it. But yet he says he will forgive our wickedness. He will forgive our crookedness. And the word merciful is the root of the word that is used in the description of the mercy seat that rested atop of the Ark of the Covenant under the Old Covenant. In Greek it was called the Hilasterion. This was a place where the blood of the sacrifice was brought by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. The high priest came into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum, where the golden cherubim rested above the Ark of the Covenant. This was God's throne from which he looked down upon the broken Ten Commandments that were inside the Ark, which were kept there. And before him came the high priest representing all the sinful, wicked people. And according to God's law, he must be struck down immediately, except that he brought before him the blood of the sacrifice shed for the sins of the people. The blood was poured upon the mercy seat so that God looked down and no longer saw the law broken and transgressed, but the blood paying for the debt of sin. And you could say this promise this way, I will be mercy seated toward your perversions. This is how God forgives our sin, by the blood of a spotless sacrifice. And Jeremiah looked forward to the coming of Messiah in Jesus Christ, who was identified by John the Baptist in John 1.29 when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. God is merciful toward our wickedness. And when we acknowledge our sin and put our faith in Christ's blood shed for us, we receive the beautiful promise becomes reality of forgiveness. But the second part of the promise is God will remember our sins no more. And we have to ask ourselves, how can an omniscient God, who knows everything, forget anything? Well, this is not the language of uh, logic or philosophy. This is the language of the marketplace. God's forgetting is based on his forgiving. 
Scripture uses the language of the marketplace to describe how God forgives and forgets. You owe a debt to someone, and you haven't paid it. The one thing you can count on is that person will not forget it. You ever borrowed money from anybody? I remember my dad had to call up his father-in-law one time and borrow some money, and, I mean, he groused about it for three days. I hate to call him. I don't want to ask him. But, you know, he was at the bottom, had nowhere else to go, so he calls up my father-in-law. And I can remember every time, or my grandfather, his father-in-law, and every time we'd go down to my grandmother's house, I could tell it was eating my dad up to have to be in his presence because it wasn't bothering my grandfather as far as I could see. It was eating my dad alive. Why? Because it was a debt. It was a debt, and he knew that he remembered that debt. But if somebody comes along and pays for that debt, He, in turn, will no longer bother you about what is owed. He has forgotten your debt. Why? Because it's been paid for in full. That's what happened when God, in his perfect justice toward the debt of our sin, it has been fully satisfied, fully paid, and God can declare he remembers it against us no more. So you stop bringing it up. He's forgotten it on the basis of payment. What a difference this makes in our relationship with God. You ever uh, had your wife get historical on you? (laughs) Not hysterical, but historical. Now, my wife never does this, by the way. These are other people. She doesn't do this because she just doesn't. But other people do this. You'll get into an argument maybe with your wife or a heated discussion or a deep conversation, and all of a sudden, everything you've ever done comes up again and you're thinking to yourself i thought we had dealt with that and it was forgiven and maybe not completely and so as a result of that conflict returns and sometimes if marriages don't learn how to deal with this it can slowly like acid eat away and kill it i never forgotten what you said at such and such a time i know I know what I know, and I remember what you did a long time ago, and you let me down, and so there's poison in the well of that relationship. But that's something we never hear from God. He has put away our sin. He has forgotten the dreadful things we have done. This is what Psalm 103, verse 12 celebrates. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? I don't know. I guess it's infinitely far. And that's the promise. This is the kind of grace that allows Christians to overcome sin and guilt in our relationships, to be able to forgive others, to be able to put away sin because the grace we have received through Jesus Christ. It makes it a whole lot easier to forgive another person if you can just see the tip of the iceberg of how much you have been forgiven. And so the next promise is probably even better than the first two. He's going to be our God. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And they shall not teach one his neighbor and each other brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. This promise has two parts. First, God promises to be our God. Personal, direct, fellowship. Intimacy with God is the crowning blessing of the new covenant. 
The condition of such fellowship is holiness, for God is holy, and he now promises to write his law in our hearts. The threat to that fellowship is sin, but he's now promised to forgive and forget it completely through Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can receive this blessing. God shall be my God, and I shall be his people. The sealing of a marriage, one that has been broken by man but rests upon the unbreakable promises of God, is therefore he replaces the old covenant with a new one, a covenant that deals with both our internal problem, that is our sin nature, and our external problem, our guilt for sin, so that he can keep his promise of old. I will be your God. It's almost as if it's a wedding occurring. And God is saying to his wife, his bride, the beautiful spotless bride, I will be your God and we shall be his people. We shall be his people. That is, he continues to work in us to bring us to a heart that's faithful. The book of Revelation says, I see a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. That's at the end. It never stops. Hallelujah. He never quits. He's always going to be our God. If he set his love upon you and regenerated you by his spirit and written his law in your heart, he is going to work on you until he works faithfulness into us. And one day we're going to be that beautiful bride coming out of heaven, joined together forever in covenant intimacy with our God. One of my greatest joys in ministry is to perform wedding ceremonies. Establishing a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. I always like to point out the bride. The bride in all her joy, in all her shining glory, is a wonderful picture of what it means to be a Christian. It's not just my idea, but it's the teaching of Scripture. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Isaiah goes on to say that these garments are like those of a groom and a bride on their wedding day. A bride purchases, purchases her gown and puts it on just for that one day. Afterwards, she changes back into regular clothes and her white wedding gown is put away. But here's the point. The way we see the bride for just one day, hear this carefully, the way we see the bride for just one day is the way God sees us every day of our lives in Jesus Christ. That is what the new covenant is about. A love relationship sealed and consummated forever by the blood of Jesus and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And because Jesus has woven our gown of righteousness and taken away our sin, what Isaiah says is true as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride. So shall God rejoice over you. He has given us a garment of salvation, a robe of righteousness, even the righteousness of Christ. And he's working in us the love and affection suitable for a bride to such a husband. God himself says, so long as we both shall live, I will be your God. 
And he works within us, and our pe- we as his people respond by saying, so long as we both shall live, we will be your people. We will know him and acknowledge him as our Lord, our God. We will follow him with our minds renewed by the truth, with hearts renewed in holiness. Our affections will be drawn to him, and we will be to him forever a bride in shining white. This is what he has promised. This is what he has accomplished in Christ. You need to think about yourself this way every day. You need to see yourself this way every day. You need to understand why the New Covenant, (laughs) you know, when I was a kid and watched television, they always had commercials on television, and the opening line for 99% of them were, the new and improved tide. It'll wash out your stains, you know. It'll do everything but fold your clothes for you, and we're working on that. But it, it, it will just make your clothes brand new. Aren't you glad that in a world full of hoaxes and scams, there's a truth you can believe in? You are a new creature in Christ Jesus, and God is doing his best work in you. He is chiseling you, and sometimes it's painful. He is working, but he's going to make you beautiful. He's going to make you as beautiful as the most beautiful bride in the universe. That's what he's going to do. Why? Because he loves us. He's crazy about us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Word of God. It is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is uh, a critic of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. We pray that we would hear this Word today. We would believe this Word today. And we would grow in this Word today. And we thank you that you never give up on us. And we thank you that though we are unfaithful, you aren't. And you don't turn your face away from us. You don't give up on us. You don't write us off. You don't kick us out of your world. But you are consistently coming to us and making us more faithful than we've ever been before through your work inside. Now, fathers, we continue to worship. May we give to you as people who are celebrating the realities of New Covenant living. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.